Good morning. I had to stop because you all sounded so beautiful. I didn't want my voice in the way of hearing you. When I was up there just now, um, and probably because I'm paying attention to devotion for this talk, I just had this feeling of um, gratitude for the teachers who put up with me over the years. Gave them a tough time. The um, I don't know why this came to me. You know, when I, when um, I was asked to send something, I really didn't have an idea, and then all of a sudden, oh, I'll talk about devotion and disappointment. No idea what I was going to talk about when I wrote that email to Danielle. So. But I've been um, feeling into this. You know, I always find when I start feeling into these, these, um, you know, I realize I didn't say good morning and I didn't say welcome. I just started in. So good morning and welcome. When I feel into this, it always strikes me in almost every situation that the way we use the word normally is not usually the way we use the word here. I was thinking about the word devotion. I'm devoted to something. And we use it all over the map. We talk about being, I'm devoted to the gym. I'm devoted to photography or I'm devoted to whatever it is. And this is kind of fundamentally different from what we mean when we say, I'm devoted to my children. Or I'm devoted to this path. Normally, this other way of devotion, we might say that There's devotion as a feeling. I feel devotion right now. And then there's devotion, which is that root V-O-T, which is the same root as vow. There's devotion that's a vow that is there regardless of whether the feeling of devotion is there. So we may have this feeling of devotion sometimes, and that's fabulous. But anybody who's been with a partner for a long time or with children know that the devotion can't be dependent on the feeling of devotion or it's short-lived. It's wobbly at best. And, um, And so knowing the difference between this devotion that is um, kind of rooted in, yeah, is rooted in a feeling, is rooted in a temporary state of mind versus the devotion that is independent of all the states of mind, 
And so that, um, that devotion is the devotion that I want to talk about. And this is a different kind of devotion because I think this kind of devotion freaks us out a little bit. You know, the idea of taking vows, if we take vows seriously, whether it be marriage vows or vows we do here, they're intense things to do. We're making a claim that we're going to stay true to these vows, thick or thin. Now, obviously, there are things that come up that make that impossible at times in terms of relationships, but, um, but even so, they're not dependent on just how I feel. And the kind of devotion is vulnerable and intimate, and um, we kind of have to throw out our distance and our cynical relationships to the world and any kind of being cool. Um, it's, a, it's an in there, at least my experience with this practice, it's an in there, very warm, very hot, very touch kind of devotion. I think that's why I was feeling what I was feeling when I mentioned about my teachers, because that devotion to me took me a long time to actually feel and understand the depth of that devotion. I think it took me a long time to feel and understand the depth of the devotion of my parents, because I was hung up in the feeling. So we start with this devotion to something, you know, a feeling of devotion as if it's outside. I'm devoted to that. I'm devoted to this practice. I'm devoted to zazen. I'm devoted to my partner. I'm devoted to a marriage. I'm devoted to my children. But then with this, you know, over time, if we deepen into the devotion, eventually the devotion goes from being something that is about something outside of us to us being the devotion. We just are the devotion. We're the embodiment of the vow. And it doesn't, you know, what's going on with the person or what's going on with what's outside of us is... is um, is not really what the devotion is about. Now we may, we may make decisions to take care of ourselves in that. That may change our relationship to the person. But we can radically change our relationship to the person in taking care of ourselves and still stay fully devoted. We can change our relationship to a particular Dharma center, or a particular teacher, or a particular partner, and remain devoted to the practice, or remain devoted to our vow. There's a lot of room to move, and our devotion doesn't necessarily go anywhere. So, in the way we talk about devotion in Zen, we often talk about um, 
we devote ourselves to the practice, or we devote ourselves to the precepts, or we devote ourselves to liberation of all beings, and even after liberation is realized for us personally, we stay devoted to the precepts, we stay devoted to liberation, we stay devoted. It's not dependent on winning something or coming to an end. We stay devoted to the devotion itself is the path. So whether we fully realize and stay devoted or whether it seems impossible to realize, we stay devoted. So at the end of all of the talks, we, we chant the four bodhisattva vows. Right? Beings are numberless. I vow to free them or I vow to save them. Delusions are inexhaustible. I vow to end them. Dharma gates are boundless. I vow to enter them. Buddha's way is unsurpassable. I vow to become it. So right in there is a vow and a devotion that is not going to realize an end. Now, it may not, this may have never crossed your mind, but for those of you who know the Four Noble Truths, there is suffering, there is a cause of suffering. Suffering can end, there's liberation, and there's a cause of that. The Four Bodhisattva Vows are the Four Noble Truths operationalized. So, there is suffering, beings suffer, beings are numberless. There is a cause of suffering, delusion. Delusion's inexhaustible, I vow to end them. Dharma gates are boundless. This is the cause of, this is the liberation from suffering. Dharma gates, entering Dharma gates is what liberates us. And then the Eightfold Path originally is the cause of the end of suffering. In this way, the Buddha's way is unsurpassable. I vow to become it. So, for the Bodhisattva path, we take, ancestors took the Four Noble Truths and turned them, each one of them, into a vow. And then we act out that vow. So this creates for us a very different kind of devotion, an endless devotion. So where does disappointment fit in in that? Because now we're on a path. And in a, in, in a certain way, we, it's, we, we're not disappointed until we're devoted, right? If I don't care, I'm not disappointed. But once I devote myself, now I have skin in the game. Now I can be devoted. Now I can be disappointed. Um, that's the vulnerable piece of devotion. I'd rather kind of keep everyone there. So we get into it. But the disappointment is wrapped up in this way of expecting a particular outcome, right? I want my devotion to this path 
to like, the, like this, and I want everybody else's devotion to this path to look like this. Because I have the view that is the right view of the path. I have the view that is the right view of the world. So this, this, in that, is a kind of um, what gets disappointed, right? What gets disappointed is we have hope. And this is not a bad thing. We have hope that, um, that beings really will be free, that delusions really will finally be done away with, that we will enter the Dharma gates, and that we will solidly carry out the path of the Buddha. That we will carry out the path of liberation. But this hope is rooted in the same expectation, and it's in the same kind of time-bound world of expectation. I want to start here, and I want to finish there. And I'm going to grab onto the stuff that gets me there. Now, sometimes this comes very nobly, you know, really, and I mean that, from our heartbreak for the world. We don't want the world to be in pain. We don't want people to be treated um, with disrespect, with humiliation, with violence. So our heart is completely broken. Now the trick is, the interrogation, the exploration is, do I want it to end because I want my heartbreak to end? What are we wanting? Because the Buddha taught a very complicated teaching, which is, he gave us this whole thing about the Four Noble Truths, right? Suffering's going to end. This is the way you end it. But then he turns around and teaches the three marks of existence and says that dukkha is a mark of conditioned existence. So what am I supposed to do with that? I'm going to be liberated from dukkha, and it's a mark of existence, and it's here. Our practice sits right in that. Those two aspects are what the Bodhisattva vows are pointing to. Dukkha is a mark of existence. I vow to be liberated from it. So there is a coming forward. There is a coming forward. You know, in the practice, if we sit with our own suffering, for a long time, and we open to our own suffering, what naturally emerges is a deep desire for it to end. Not in some convenient way or quick way, but just a deep caring that comes up where I start taking care of this one in a deep way. And in that arising, the same comes for other people. I don't want them to be suffering either. And that comes forward, we might say, from the heart. But if we fall too far on that side, 
I'm going to put a stop on that for a second. Now we have, so that comes from the heart. Then we have this other side, which is, okay, dukkha is going to keep on going. Buddha told me it was a mark, it's going to be here. I have this desire to end it. That is, I think, a very um, skillful, not only do I, do I think it is, in fact, an aspect of the way we are conditioned, but, but it's a very skillful thing to communicate to a mind that wants to take anything and turn it into um, a goal, a finish line, an ego-driven way of being in the world with suffering. And when we do that, then everybody disappoints us. Because everybody else is suffering, deluded, etc. So all, every, suddenly the whole world's full of disappointments because we want to get there. And everybody's disappointing us along the way. Our teachers are disappointing us. Zen centers disappoint us. Everybody disappoints us. Certainly I feel that all the time. And then I have to say, wait a second, what makes me think? What makes me think that the world should be some other way? Now this is not, now here's, here's why I think the two exist together. This is tricky business. Because if we're too far on that side, then we resign ourselves. World's dukkha, I'm done. You know, I'm not going to worry myself with it because that's the way it is. And there are people who teach Buddhism this way. You know, I think it's confused, personally. But um, otherwise, why would the Buddha have done anything? But, um, but this certainly is out there. And it's, the not, it's falling into nihilism. But then there's the other side, which is the, which is the heartfelt, I want suffering to end. And if we get goal-oriented with that, then we start becoming efficient and strong-willed, and we start pointing out the people who are the causes, and we start dividing up the world and separating things out. And suddenly we have the one pure cause that's going to eliminate all the suffering. It's going to come from me. And I have it figured out. So if I live between the two, if I live out my heartfelt, what I consider awake, and I think everybody has this in them, awake desire to end the suffering of the world, because this is what, that, that, that devotion to the end of the suffering of the world is what it is to be a whole human being. When we are completely open to the wholeness of ourselves, this is what comes forward, is a desire to end the suffering of human beings, of everyone. This is what comes forward. If we cut off all kinds of aspects to ourselves, we don't look at that pain, we don't look at that pain, we ignore this, those people over there, I don't have time to think about their pain, these kinds of things, then we're all cut up. And we may not have a desire to end their suffering because we've chopped our consciousness to bits. But when we let it all in, and we really let ourselves feel it, when we let our, our hearts break for ourselves and for the world, then this, 
why the Buddha called karuna. We translate it as compassion, but as more accurately feeling the suffering of people so deeply that we want it to end. That comes forward. So to have that and know that the path is long. And this is something, I was thinking about this, this is something that addicts and activists learn, you know, if they're going to stay sane, they learn pretty quickly. Even though I'm devoting myself to the end of addiction, the mind's going to be there maybe till I'm dead. Even though I'm devoting myself to social justice in the world, the path is probably going to be rich until I'm dead. If I fall into what I understood in when I was, and I'm talking about me, when I understood when I was 23 or 24, then I'm just angry all the time because it's not moving the way I think it should be over. By 35, we should have this worked out. This whole social justice problem. But then you hit 35, and then you hit 40, and then you hit 45, and it's more complicated. And so we marry this um, heartbreak. Because the Bodhisattva vow takes both of these in, in um, it holds them both. So we marry this heartbreak, we marry this desire to end suffering to our vow. These things live together. The heartbreak supports the vow. The vow takes care of the heartbreak. Because the heartbreak without the vow is a tough place to live. It's an overwhelming place to live. But then something happens where it's like, no, actually, I'm going to turn my life towards something that addresses this. Hooking our motivation on feelings wobbly, but our vow gets, because if we hook it on feeling and expectation, then every time something arises that is counter to what we hope, we're discouraged. But if we stay connected to vow, then every time something arises that is contrary to what we hope, our vow gets stronger. The vow gets stronger. Yeah, the, this is the world. There's more information. Vow has to get stronger. Vow will get stronger. I think there's a reason. I think there's a different kind of hope in Buddhism that isn't like this. And we'll talk about that in a bit. But it's not just, we're not just left in the wind. What's the time frame on this? Service is at 12.20. Okay.
So I think about this disappointment and, um, and what I do with it. Because I'm always susceptible to this disappointment business. And some disappointment is small and some disappointment is profound. So I don't want to make light of it at all. But I do use disappointment to look at what I, not so much what I think the world should be, but why I think I'm the one who knows. That I'm the first cause that has some idea of what the world should be. And as if I know what's going on. As if I know what leads to liberation. As if I know who the wise are, who the free are, who are the ones who are not wise, who are the ones who are not free. As if I'm somehow clear on all that. I don't know. I have, for some reason, well, not for some reason, I have a deep faith, because of what this practice has shown me, that we are moving toward freedom. But that is because of the nature of reality itself, not because um, some clear understanding of what we're doing. And I could be wrong. But this disappointment is a Dharma gate, right? Looking at this disappointment and the why, how we get disappointed and why we get disappointed and the things that disappoint us is the way to enter into seeing our own minds more deeply. And this then strengthens our vow. This brings us back into a deeper devotion. And we'll, I'll end and we'll talk about some questions because I know there are some people that that's hard to do with right now. But when views and behaviors disappoint me, what I find transformative, without necessarily agreeing with them, including them, without necessarily agreeing with anything that's being said, because I don't often, but to notice the mind that is going to shove as hard as it can against something. Now this is tricky because this is like, this is zazen itself, right? We sit upright with everything that gets thrown at us by our own mind. And some of it's not that nice. We get all kinds of opinions thrown at us in zazen that aren't coming from the so-called outside of me. They're coming to me from me. I've internalized views that I've inherited and I talk to myself in ways that are not always great. And, but I can be upright with those because this practice has trained my body to be upright with them. It has trained my mind to be upright with them. It has trained me to hear them and say, okay, fine, I'll include you, but eh, I'm not buying in. 
You can be in the space, but I'm not buying into it. This is harder when behind those views is power, systems of domination, governments, etc. Whole histories of violence. But for our own freedom, it doesn't change. For our own freedom, the, um, the rules don't change. Whether it be the thoughts that are coming at us from our own mind or what's coming at us from all around us. Our freedom is still dependent on include, but don't buy into. Don't shove away. Don't grab onto. Don't shut your mind down as if you, it's not there. Delude yourself. So that not pushing away and not buying into, this is the mind of freedom. And we note when we shove away and we note when we buy into. So how do we stay in this? You know, how do we stay in, um, in the path? Because it is, um, how do I accept that dukkha is the mark? And you know, dukkha, when we say suffering, it, in a certain way it makes it bigger, and both bigger and smaller than what the Buddha meant. He was looking, when he said there was dukkha, he was saying one specific thing, he was saying that in the conditioned human mind, there is always dissatisfaction. In, in life as we understand it, there is always dissatisfaction. Now why? Because we want it to be satisfactory. We want it to satisfy us all the time. And in the wanting it to satisfy us, that's what makes life unsatisfactory. If that stops, if the demand on life that it make us happy all the time stops, then the mind goes to ease. Then we can go into the world and meet it and meet the suffering and meet the pain without getting tossed off of our seat all the time. Because we don't, we're not demanding of it. We're not demanding of the world to give us a particular thing that fits with our understanding of what a good life is. So there is this, um, the way I like to think about hope in Buddhism, because I really think that the hope we normally talk about too easily is a kind of grasping, um, is in terms of Buddha nature. So there's this um, idea in Mahayana Buddhism that all of us, all of us are the potential energy of Buddha. That once we clear the hindrances out of the way, once we see clearly the roots of what's causing our suffering, what is left 
is the liberated, awake, natural mind of a human being when they're not confused. Now, I happen to have some belief in this, strong belief in this, for, for one major reason, because there's a big argument about this concept of how do you know, right? And um, there's one way for me I know I know, and it's this. The practice wouldn't work otherwise. Why is it that when you see the roots of a particular habit, it falls away and you're free? There's no reason for that to happen. Unless we are naturally liberated and all we have to do is see what's going on. Because those of us who have been sitting for a while, we've had hundreds of experiences. I saw the root of a habit pattern. It fell away and seeing the root and I feel freer. I feel liberated. My mind and my practice move toward more liberation more freedom. If that weren't, if that's not Buddha nature, then I don't know how this works. If we aren't naturally moving toward freedom, when we remove things, then there'd be no reason to come here. So that's really all we mean when we talk about Buddha nature. So in the dukkha of life, is this, is this freedom that's right there, is this love that's right there, is this compassion that's right there, the equanimity that's right there. And that for me, seeing that, knowing that, that is a outside of time, outside of expectation, rock-solid foundation of hope. Because it simply is here all the time. It's not going anywhere. It's never going to change. In all the confusion is liberation. In all of the mess is the possibility for Buddha all the time. The only thing that we have to do is see the views that confuse us and work to end those views, work to give up those views. We have to work very diligently and very disciplined in a way. We have to identify the views that are creating separation and aggression and violence. We have to know them. We have to understand how they confuse us. Again, no different than Zazen. This is what zazen is. This is what a life of awakening is. We have to do these things, and we have to, uh, in the way we talk about it in Zen, we have to um, renounce, confess and renounce them. Not just like, oh, that's an interesting view that causes me a lot of harm. No. We see a view that causes us a lot of harm and causes other people harm. We renounce the view. We confess the view, and we renounce the view. We don't stay quiet about the view. We don't keep it to ourselves. We make a point of speaking it. Doesn't, didn't we just chant the end with renunciation and confession? Yeah. 
So that process, to me, is a deep and profound hope. That is as if we are to be, if we are to come forward as Buddhist practitioners in all of this, then I believe Zazen itself cultivates a deep faith in knowing that liberation is here, that freedom is here, that the end of confusion is right here. We may not believe that yet, and that's okay. But over time we do. So when I um, think of a really lovely way that um, hope is talked about, or this in this way of talking about it, I'm going to read a translation of Dogen from the Bendua. As your mind and surroundings sit together in stillness, no separation anymore between your mind and your surroundings. As your mind and surroundings sit together in stillness, awakening flows in and affirmation flows out. And then the grass, trees, and lands which are embraced by the teaching together radiate a great light and endlessly expound the inconceivable profound dharma. Grass, trees, and walls bring forth the teaching for all beings, common people as well as sages, and they in accord extend this dharma for the sake of grass, trees, and walls. When we are um, in this natural mind, when we are in touch with it, awakening flows in and affirmation flows out. A deep hope. So, with that, with all that out there, let's, what's on your mind? Um, I think that's enough. So, thank you for listening. And the rain has called an end to the talk. I know that's maybe a little provocative, that the this talk, but I feel like that's what you're supposed to do when you deal with Zen. Provoke. Thoughts? Feelings? Yes. I flow. Um, are both uh, our views right and wrong? If we believe that they are true outside of our conditioning, they're both conditioned. But what we like to do is um, wholesome views, because the Buddha never used the word right and wrong, right? Use the word wholesome and unwholesome. So, so there's, there's views that lead toward wholesome ends, and there's views that lead toward unwholesome ends. There's views that lead toward peace, and loving kindness, and compassion, and there's views that lead toward violence, separation. So, um, 
we have to identify those, but we have to, in identifying those, we have to know that even the wholesome views are contextual. So our relationship to our views is always dynamic. A view may be appropriate in one group, but the very same words in another context may have unwholesome results. So we can't rest in our laurels. We have to always be paying attention to the arc of causality all the time. What are the causal relationships of everything that I'm saying and how they relate to who I'm speaking with? So it's a life of mistakes. <laughs> uh, yes. Thank you, Greg. Mm -hmm. um, in the chat, the word evil jumped out at me. Yeah. And I'm thinking about that now in relation to all the unwholesome mm -hmm. aspects of not using the word good or right and wrong. Yeah. Evil seems to have some sort of innate meaning of wrongness. Yeah. So sometimes that's a translation issue. Um, but there is something akin to evil but I th in, in Buddhism, but I think it is, um, I think we have to separate it from the Judeo-Christian notion of evil. Because if you're looking at evil in Buddhism, it's when we have an intention to harm. You know, not because we're inherently evil. So how you, root, how you understand evil, at least how I understand evil within our context, is there are times that we have an intention to harm someone else. And that's deeply confused. And that's more than just kind of confused harm. That's a different thing. Now, it is ultimately confused. Any desire to harm another person is um, rooted in f fundamental confusion about the nature of life. So it's, it's always confused. But it's different than, um, oh, I just didn't know I was harming somebody. I thought I was doing good, but I harmed them. That certainly happens. But that's not, I wanted to harm them. So knowing the difference in ourselves and that, I think that's when we're talking about evil views we're talking more about that. John. Oh, you mean just disappointment in general? When I set up the talk, um, you know, I was thinking a lot about my own disappointment. Well, a few things. I was thinking about disappointment in practice, in practice over the years with teachers and with fellow Sangha members. But, but disappointment with the world. Disappointment, sometimes I feel, you know, sometimes I have this feeling of like, really, is this the best we can do, really? I mean, come on. <laughs> With all of the beautiful energy of human beings, and this is what we put together. So it's, um, so yeah, I, I, in a certain way, I have a, uh, a pretty deep disappointment. 
know. Um, but I don't, um, I don't believe it. I don't let it be the thing that I hang my hat on. It's heartbreaking. And what I find is, if I'm disappointed, it's usually because I'm not, I'm, I'm trying to stay like just a little bit away from heartbreak. Just a little bit. Oh, I'm disappointed in the way we're behaving. No, I'm not. I'm heartbroken about the way we're behaving. I'm completely and totally shattered by the way we're behaving. Difficult to feel, but a lot more honest. Yes. I would agree with that. So would, most, so would all the ancestors I know of. I think that's a pretty solid position. Yeah, yeah, it's strange. I mean, it gives us, it is the, it builds up structural integrity. It's one way to think about it, right? Vow's very hard if the mind isn't still. The mind is bouncing all over the place. It's very hard to live by vow. But, but as the mind settles and the body roots, then when you're coming from that place and say, no, I'm not going to do this, there's some behind it. Yeah. Yes. For me, it's very often the, um, the most common source of disappointment and the hardest kind of disappointment not to believe it is disappointment in myself. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You don't know who you're supposed to be. I don't know who I'm supposed to be. That's one. The other is, you're, the way you're conditioned is not your fault. It's your responsibility now. You're sitting down and you're taking care of it, but not your fault. You didn't come up with it. Nobody interviewed you as a fetus and said, how would you like to be conditioned now? You just got tossed into the world and you got what you got. And so it's um, the sooner you can stop blaming yourself for that, something you had no control over, the easier it gets. And also, that conditioning, the awakening through your particular conditioning, is exactly 
the freedom that you will offer everyone else. Only you can wake up from that position. I can't. And so all of, the, all of our conditioning has to be felt, welcomed, seen through. And then we support, when we do that, then the person next to us and the person next to us, they, we're supporting their liberation. We're supporting their freedom. And part of, the way is, part of the way is energetic in ways we'll never understand. But part of the way is very direct, which is I'm not putting my views on you anymore. I'm going to stop putting views on you. And then they are literally freer. So yeah, disappointment with yourself, it'll happen, but eventually it's kind of, it, it gets um, sweeter. Oh really, you're doing that again? It just gets sweeter over time. Because the perfection thing, you see through that it's nonsense. Who's making that decision? I think it is. So if we surrender ego and we give up, I, I guess what I'm wondering is, if we give that up, isn't there something of a catalyst to disappointment in that tension that we lose? Yeah, you know, this is the thing. This is a great, thank you for this question. Because this catalyst question is fascinating to me because people say the same thing about anger, right? I need anger or I'm not going to do anything about the world. Um, Maybe, maybe, but um, all of these more shallow responses, and, and that's not a value condemnation, that's literally a physical, they're, they're more emotionally shallow than what's at the deepest. Um, they are all on top of fear. I'm afraid to respond, so I need to build up a certain amount of energy in order to do it. And that's not, you know, that's not a um, condemnation. That's just what we're doing. You know? so, so with disappointment, um, I do not find that disappointment, this is my own experience, I do not find that disappointment or anger or outrage or any of these things have any of the power of a broken, open, activated heart. Not even close. They're like jokes by comparison. They burn out. They exhaust us. But broken, open, activated heart not only doesn't exhaust us, it powers us. Our energy goes up once we stop resisting it. So, you know, and everyone who has ever done this long-term in a serious way, they all agree, they eventually get to, it's about love or it's about nothing. Everybody gets there. 
So it's, um, and then they usually, <laughs> and I, I, I say this with really incredible amount of recognition of how confused our world is, when people really get there and they're really coming from that place, it's the biggest threat to the society that we know. Angry? Get angry all you want. We have militaries for that. Nobody cares if you get angry. But organize around love? Then that's a whole different thing. There is no response to that. You can shut it down, you can kill the people, that certainly happens. But there is no way to... You can't fight against that. Yeah. Or a time? Okay. Any burning, one burning question? Any? Okay. Thank you very much. Oh, we should chant the vows. May our intention equally. Thank you for listening to this podcast offered by the Brooklyn Zen Center. Our programs are given free of charge and made possible by the donations we receive. For more information on supporting Brooklyn Zen Center, please visit the giving section of brooklynzen.org.